my goal with a post like that is to help people who are lucky enough to still have these relationships around get that punch in the face before the person's gone. Not necessarily even, yes, you should, I think to spend more time with people, but to appreciate the time that you're spending with those people as very, very precious, which is what it really is. This is it, you know? There's not much time left with these people. Even if you all have a bunch of years left, the actual time with these relationships is in its waning years. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Neil Blumenthal, and that is, creativity flows when curiosity is stoked. Our guest today, Tim Urban, has built a career on appealing to the curiosity of others. He's the writer and illustrator of the very popular website, Wait But Why, a long-form blog that regularly reaches millions of readers. He's also delivered a TED Talk, Inside the Mind of a Master Procrastinator, which has been viewed almost 29 million times. Tim, welcome. I'm really excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast today. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to hear how you got started as a writer. Was Wait But Why your first writing project? Uh, no. So I had, um, if I had to really go back to the beginning of kind of my current writing style, like it's really just kind of like writing long email recaps to friends <laughs> about something funny that happened. I would have gone on a funny thing and there'd be some story and I would just write like a long email recap and I kind of had fun doing that. And so when I, I started a blog on the, you know, the platform blogger in 2005 and um, basically just kind of took the long email to friends concept and just put it on the internet. And I would tell a funny story there instead, or I would talk about a random thought I had. And so that was this kind of very um, side project blog that I did for six years. And as I did it, they got more involved and um, I started doing drawings at some point and, um, and they became more of like an actual thing I was doing. But um, it really kind of evolved out of nothingness into kind of um, a, you know, a legit side project blog. And then uh, a couple of years after I stopped doing that, started writing Wait But Why, uh, I took things up a notch, but it still to me is kind of this long single evolution. All right, I can't totally let you off with that. Now, were you an English major? Was there an actual real job that came before this? Did you do any writing? I, I, I need a little more info on, on, what, on what came before. Yeah, so I was definitely not an English major. Um, I hated the humanities um, and I hated writing and I still do hate writing, FYI. The nightmare thing in school was when someone assigned me a paper. I really liked math and science and I liked learning about history maybe and I liked reading the books that were assigned in English sometimes. I couldn't stand analyzing them and I definitely didn't want to write anything about them and I didn't like writing thesis <laughs> statements and topic sentences and counter arguments and it's just I hate it. I definitely didn't ever want to be never thought I would want to be a writer because of all of that. But when I bring up that like writing emails to friends thing, that wasn't part of that category for me. It wasn't I wasn't sitting down to you know, with an open word document to write a, a thoughtful essay with a, with a thesis. No, it was just, I'm just typing out funny thoughts or whatever. And, and that I can do that. I don't mind that kind of fun. And so 
that's the part of my life that expanded into the writing world, not the part that hated writing English papers. Now, I did have another job while I was doing this first blog side project with my longtime business partner, Andrew Finn. We started, you know, we've known each other forever and we started a tutoring test prep company together. I had been tutoring on the side to pay my bills in LA after college while I was trying to write movie scores. I was writing music and then I was blogging on the side and I was doing all these creative projects that I liked doing. And then I was tutoring to pay the bills. And then I procrastinated from the hard pathways of these creative careers that I wanted to pursue deep down and dug into the business world and started turning this tutoring side thing into a real company with Andrew, which was really fun. Uh, It wasn't exactly what I wanted to pursue long term, but it was, uh, you know, it was a job and it was real and we were building something together. And that's what I did for nine years after college before going full time on one of the creative projects, which was Wait But Why. So there were a few of them. Was this, this was one of, one of many experiments or one of a... Yeah, one, yeah. We actually, we started this tutoring company. And then at one point we built a podcast app, an app to like listen to podcasts because we both liked them. This was 2011. And for the record, it looks like we actually were onto something. That, was a, that would have been a good time to start a podcast yeah. app. Unfortunately, we didn't really take it the full distance. We built the app and the, the guy built it in HTML5 and it was just kind of bad. And we kind of didn't know what we were doing. So we stopped. But we had the right instinct that podcasts were going to get bigger, and I, you know, they really have. So we did that, and um, we've started different... You know, the current tutoring test prep company that we actually have is called Arbor Bridge. That itself was a spinoff of the original test prep company, which was just for you know, in-home students. You know, tutors go into the homes and work with students after school, kind of a normal tutoring company. And then we actually... Um, one of our referral sources, the people who kind of send us students college counselor said, can you work with a student who's in Brazil? And we didn't have any tutors in Brazil, obviously. But she said, um, you know, maybe you can tutor her online. And we said, okay, let's make this work. So we spent a bunch of days just researching, how, you know, finding different uh, mediums to use online and see if we can actually do a good tutoring session online. And we could. And so that turned into a spinoff company, which is now the entire test prep company is online because that ended up being a way, you know, more efficient uh, and actually, in a lot of ways, more effective way to tutor. So there, we were kind of just serial Tinkers. starters of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Wait But Why was one of those things. It was a me- extra meaningful one to me because I really, really wanted to do one of my creative side projects full time. And this was a way I could kind of keep working with Andrew. We could start it together, but I would write on it. And I would, instead of writing five hours a week on my old blog, I'd write 60 hours a week on this one. And what would happen if I put all my time into it? And so... That was kind of the genesis of it. And what I find so interesting about Wait But Why is that unlike many blogs, it isn't really built around a specific topic. It's almost, it's a little Seinfeld-esque uh, in that sense. So what, you just said 50, 60 hours, like what is your cadence? And I know people must ask you this all the time and I get asked the question, but how do, how do you come up with the ideas? Is it a long development process or is it like something happened that day or a couple dots connect? Because I'm sure that's the first thing most people ask you. Well, the cadence has changed. I mean, early on, I was writing a new post every week. So I had a list, a potential posts list that was ongoing and growing. And I still have that list and it's become huge yeah. um, because, you know, you can, once you're looking through the lens of, would this be a good blog post at everything? Suddenly you see blog posts everywhere. Yeah. You know, someone has a tantrum at the airport and you say, <laughs> okay, that's a perfect 
I can see that the stick cartoon of this tantrum, which will be part of a post that's nine things that annoy me about airports or funny things about air, airports or, you know. Does this make your friends and family nervous? No, because I don't really write about them in particular and uh, too much. Um, but we all have interesting conversations with their friends or their family. And we sit there and you just have this really great dinner with someone and you're having this, you really expound upon something. You feel like you kind of came on something new together. And, you know, once you're writing a blog, I would write that down and say, okay, say, I want to dig into this and, you know, maybe, you know, write a post about it or, or just, it, or it just goes onto the list. And maybe later it gets combined with three other things on the list into this one idea, which is, this is what stand-up comedians do too. You know, you just, you kind of just jotting down your thoughts and notes and observations and, throughout any day and you end up with a pretty big list to choose from. And so I started writing, you know, weekly posts like that. And then as time went on, I, I started digging in deeper and deeper and deeper. And so my posts became longer and fewer. And now they've almost reached kind of book length for each one. Something I, I may rein in again at some point, but at the moment I'm in kind of like really expansive land with my writing. What's the word count of a post these days? So these days, I mean, early on, they were in the. I tried not to go over three thousand words, um, and I still did a lot. And then that turned into you know six and eight and ten thousand oh, words. Really, and, it really is a book, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, I mean, the last few posts have been, you know, the one of them was forty thousand words, which is actually a book. My current post is a series of posts that total over a hundred thousand words. So. Yeah, I've basically become, without realizing, become an author more than a blogger, and my posts happen to be online. It's kind of the way it's it seems at the moment. But I don't know, something about putting it online and just people being able to for free just share it, and it's good for drawings. If I have a lot of um, visuals, you know, it actually works better in a blog post than a book. And it sucks reading stuff online, you know, in some ways, but on, in other ways, you know, a big long scroll where you can, you know, embed any kind of images or videos you want throughout is and link to things is, is a, is a nice kind of um, flexibility that a book with pages doesn't have. I mean, so 40,000 sort of a, it's actually probably the length of a lot of the smaller format books I've seen these days. So like, how long does that take you to do from beginning to end to get it online? I mean, that, if that was a book, you know, that'd be a year process for some people, but obviously you're, you're posting more often than that. Well, it depends. On one hand, I can work really quickly under pressure. It's something I've always been able to do. And so if I have a really serious deadline for some reason, if some external thing is scaring me into doing it, I can actually do a 40,000 word post, including the research, beginning, middle, and then revision drawings and posted um, in like six weeks, eight weeks. That's if I'm under a ton of pressure. If I'm not under pressure, I can go the opposite direction and I can have a real problem getting it out because I'll just keep adding to it. I'll keep obsessing over, is this the right outline? I'll, I'll um, you know, want to perfect the drawings more. Stuff that doesn't actually really, in the end, if you keep doing that forever, doesn't really make the post better enough to warrant the extra time. Time for me is, uh, is very dependent upon external situations. You made a nice segue into something I wanted to ask you about, which is your TED Talk. I was going to make the assumption that you were a productive procrastinator. So you have this TED Talk that ev everyone is a procrastinator. As I said before, I think 29 million views. Give us your philosophy on procrastination. Is it actually bad or is it good or do we need it? Well, yeah. So there's procrastination is a complicated topic. There's you know one school of thought that likes to say procrastination is good. And then another 
that says it's bad, which is kind of my <laughs> school of thought. But I, I don't. I think they can both be right. I think if we're talking about different things, Adam Grant has a TED talk where he talks about being a precrastinator, which is the opposite of a procrastinator. So, a precrastinator is the kind of person who they get an assignment, work, school, anything else, and they immediately do it and get it well before the deadline because it just gives them anxiety knowing that there's this deadline looming over them, even if it's in the future, they get anxious right then and they will sit down and they'll knock it out and send it in, whether it's a book deadline or paper or whatever it is. And the procrastinator does the opposite. They get an assignment and they look at it and it looks dreadful and they will then do whatever they can to ignore it and avoid it. Even if it's bothering, it's not like they're always cocky and laughing and saying, ha ha, I don't have to do it. They're often really, really wish they could just do it like everyone else. Just just do it this time. Do it normally. Just just be you know reasonable about it and you'll be happy, you'll get you'll do better on it. But they can't. They run into this force inside of them that will resist any work until you absolutely have to. So they'll, they'll do everything in the last second. And the thing is both of those people, in a weird way, have a similar problem, which is they both are actually rushing the work. And when you rush the work too much, what happens is the only option you end up really being left with is doing something derivative of what other people have already done. Doing original things is hard. It takes toiling. It takes pondering. It takes you know frustrating brainstorming sessions that nothing happens and you come back the next day and then at some point epiphanies hit and, and you come up with something really good and you work on it and you, and you work on it until it's really excellent. And if you're rushing to get the work out, to get it done and out, and you just want to move, or if you're waiting till the last second, neither of those gives you the time and space to really do original work, I think. And so what Adam talks about is he says that procrastination is a good thing. And I think that for those people who are procrastinators, right. I think it is. Yes, I think they, those people need to learn to be more comfortable with the feeling of, yes, there is a deadline. You know, it is looming and I'm not, you know, and, and it's, I'm going to have to live with that for a little while. And I'm not going to just get it done. And yeah, that might give me some anxiety, but that's something to overcome. That's a childish anxiety. And I should mature out of that. And what I would say is that that's true. And for people like me, who is never the problem doing it too early, the problem is always <laughs> waiting till the last second. Those people, I would say the opposite. No, your procrastination for you is a vice. It is not helping you. It is shoving all your work into the last second, giving you a lot of anxiety along the way and preventing you from doing great things. So I think that um, the key here is balance and neither the pre or procrastinator have their handle on that. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. 
That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, two thoughts on that. One, it sounds like you need a little bit of the dopamine and the adrenaline to do your best work. I think some of us just need that deadline and that pressure. But, And I'm sure you've written about this too, but it, I think it also just goes into the concept that we're back to the Eisenhower principle, people can't separate, you know, urgent and important. So in in the case of the procrastinators, like you were saying, like getting something done soon may not be the right thing to get done. Right. And I, I think that's the biggest problem is procrastinating in the quadrant where things are now all urgent and important when you could have done some work on the important but less urgent stuff. Yeah, that's right. Both of these people have trouble with the important but not urgent stuff. These people yeah. both in a lot of ways <laughs> They respond to urgency. Urgency is what drives them. Right. I call it the, the panic monster. And for a procrastinator, it's the panic monster actually shows up and scares him into working. And the procrastinator, it's the fear of the panic monster later. Or maybe the panic monster in its own way just shows up earlier. But I, I don't know. I, I really can speak most to my own psychology because I really know how it works. I know how procrastinators think. Procrastinators are aliens to me. I don't really understand... <laughs> how how they think. I, don't, I can't imagine doing things the way they do them. I guess I can kind of imagine the feeling of like a looming anxiety and they just want to get it off their plate. Like I've had that experience in different situations. So maybe that's what they're going through. But, but either way, um, you know, if you're driven by the panic monster, if you're driven by only this concept of there's a deadline, okay, now I have, then you're not going to end up that fulfilled. You're not going to get to where you want to be. Because if you think about like, I think, you know, if you define important as this kind of thing that is that serves your long-term goals, values, or mission. Yeah. So usually, or another way to think about it is stuff that might end up might end up on your part of your epitaph, or you're lying on your deathbed thinking back on your life and the things you accomplished. You know, what are you thinking about there? Those are the important things. The things that you know, writing your email, uh, you know, getting your to inbox zero on a on a random Tuesday, not going to end up on your epitaph. It doesn't contribute to your long-term goals, values, mission. Now, maybe it doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't do it. I mean, the urgent and not important stuff, you still, you know, yeah. you got to do your, your thing. But the fallacy is starting to convince yourself that you've been productive that day because you did a bunch of that stuff and you did a bunch of errands and you paid some bills and you went and got to inbox zero and you did a bunch of meetings and, and you know, you feel great. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm working. I had a productive day. You take a step back. Did you really move forward on anything important? And, and the answer is usually no, because most important stuff is not urgent. And important can be actual accomplishments, but it also can be spending time with people that matter. It can be getting to the gym. It can be breaking up with someone. That's a really important thing to do because it's the right move, but you just it's not urgent and you procrastinate on it forever. 
um, it can also be making self-improvement and, um, you know, working on actually, you know, learning something new so you can have more skills so you can accomplish more things later. So there's all this stuff that really makes a human life rich, that really is what, you know, allows the individual in us to kind of live their best life. And that stuff gets totally lost and for procrastinators and probably for procrastinators too. And then people end up way down the road in life looking back and feeling like they're not fulfilled. And sometimes it's not just the the sort of deadline monster. I think it's just people who are sort of addicted to the checklist satisfaction, right? So as you said, I have the, you know, I can check off these eight things that I got done today and they're done. They don't matter, but they're done. But what I really needed was a deposit of 20 minutes on the book that I really wanted to write more than anything else in my life. It just seems easier or simpler to keep checking off those, you know, the dry cleaning and the this and the inbox zero than the 20 minutes and the 20 minutes to the book. And then it just becomes this big goal that we can never address because we haven't, we haven't taken any chunks or bites towards the bigger goal. So my analogy always, if it's a really big mountain and you don't walk towards it, it's always this kind of big looming mountain in the background. Yeah, the uh, the checklist is a dopamine hit. Yeah, it's not really different than getting a dopamine hit from eating a cookie. To me, it is just another thing our brain can get addicted to, and it can feel really good, um, just like eating a cookie. It feels good, but it is not um, actually doing something uh, good. It's not actually doing something meaningful. I mean, again, you not like you people. It's not like the answer is to not take your stuff to the cleaners ever. Doing those things is like taking a shower, it's going to the bathroom, it's just, it's stuff that you have to do. It's not work, it's not productivity. And that's not just cleaners, that goes for a lot of stuff that actually happens at work. A lot of, you know, assignments you're handing and things that seem like genuine work, that really seem productive. If you take a step back and say, does this contribute to my long-term goals, values, and mission in a serious way? You know, is this stuff that could lead to something that could be on my epitaph? If the answer is no, that's like taking a shower. It's like eating your breakfast, okay? You have to do it. You're not getting work done. And the other, that's really the burden because, you know, you don't need to do eight hours of important but not urgent stuff a day. Like you said, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour a day can do it. So it's on one hand, you can think of, oh, damn it, none of that counts as work. On the other hand, I only have to work one hour days. And so the one thing I think a checklist can be good for to this purpose is it can build up to momentum. It's like a running start. And so when I start doing the checklist, I start feeling like empowered and good about myself. And that's when I'm more likely to suddenly open that, like you said, a book you want to write, um, opening up something and actually uh, working on it because you have these positive feelings. So sometimes I'll do a bunch of easy, unimportant stuff first to kind of get myself in an optimistic zone and then get those dopamine hits going. And then I can kind of ride that momentum into something harder sometimes. But, you know, it's a dangerous thing to go on because you can also just use your whole day on it. Well, in the context of what is important, I think how I originally got introduced to your writing and the favorite thing that you've written was this post on the life calendar, which put a human lifespan in very visual terms. So it combined great writing and great visual showing the number of years, months, and days in a human life as small dots. And you, you even took it a step further by counting all the Super Bowls you thought you had left in your life, pizzas and Chinese takeout. I'm curious, what first inspired you to write that post? And I have to assume you got some really interesting reactions from all over the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a little like I was just saying, you know, with the epitaph and your deathbed and goals and long-term mission. It's the same idea. 
I talk about deathbeds a lot and epitaphs a lot because it's a zoom out mechanism. Right. And I think that sometimes you only can be clear headed on that really zoomed out level. And you're, when you're, when you're hovering way above your life, looking down on it and you can see it, you know, like if you're in a helicopter, you can see the whole coastline. Suddenly, if you go high enough, you can get the picture of the whole deal. Versus when you're down on the beach, you can only see a little tiny stretch. You don't even know what you're looking at. You miss the big picture. So I always try to kind of come up with like a mental helicopter to take me way above and remind me of what's actually going on here. Remind me what the hell I'm even doing and why I'm doing it and what what's actually going on. Like just what is the, this story that, that's happening here? And And it's incredible how often, how bad we are because we're not really programmed by evolution to be good at that. It wasn't helpful to help us survive. So we're pretty naturally inclined to zoom way in on today and on this week and on these little petty things going on um, when none of that actually matters. And then later in life, you know, when you look back, you have all these regrets because you made all these decisions day after day that didn't make sense in the big picture. And it's so clear when you zoom out. If you think about your career or you think about something and you look at your epitaph and you try to imagine what do I want on there, that can help you, you know, recenter you and think, am I doing important work? So this post was a similar idea, but it was more about relationships. And it was saying, you know, if you take a big zoom out on your life and you look at it like visually as this kind of like little life calendar of, you know, weeks, there's just, you can see all the weeks on one page very easily of your whole life. And you realize like, okay, so this is what I've actually, this is reality here. It's not this thing that goes on forever. It's this kind of little collection of weeks and I'll do them and then that's it. And I don't have any weeks left and that's the end. So what am I actually doing with these weeks? And I think that's kind of an important thing to look at. It's not always fun to look at. Sometimes it's inspiring and is fun. Sometimes it's, it's upsetting, but either way, it's reality. And so I, I think it's always good to look at reality. And, um, and then specifically, I, I talked about this concept that, uh, especially with you know, these, some of our most important relationships, usually most of our most important relationships are ones that we kind of built in the first 20 years of our life, our you know, oldest friends in our family. And if you think about it, you, know, you spend your first couple decades spending a ton of time with those people, whether it's uh, you know, your family who you're with every day when you come home from school. Um, every weekend you're with your family, you know, and then you're with your friends all the time, these old friends every day at school. And then you go to college and you graduate college and you move somewhere and your friends scatter around and you might not be near your family. And you end up seeing your friends a few times a year. Maybe you're, you're lucky and you see them, you know, a few times a month, but uh, if you don't live in the same city as them, you often, you know, whether it's friends or family, you see them a few times a year. And so what that means is if you actually add up the total, if you just like make a chart of all the days you're going to hang out with those people, 90% of them have already happened, just num- numerically, like 90% of them happened in the first 20 years. Because when you go from five days a week, or seven days a week to twice a year, or, you know, 10 times a year, either way, you know, you're now in this very sparsely populated area, for the rest of your life of seeing these people. And so to just remember that you're in the tail end, at least in person, with all of these important relationships. So, you know, I live um, in New York. My parents live in Boston. I see them as a few times a year. But the point is that, like, I'm enjoying the last few percent of my days with them every time I'm with them. And that's just one of these, this is true. This is not me doing some weird, you know, mind trick. This is right. reality. That's the, that is the very harsh reality. And so you can either choose to ignore it. And then one day they die and no, nothing, 
nothing like death brings out the zoom out. You know, when someone dies, suddenly all the time I could have spent with them, all of that wasted time, you know, all that, you know, it's all so clear because death just is a punch in the face and brings us way up in the helicopter and we can see reality. And my goal with a post like that is to help people who are lucky enough to still have these relationships around get that punch in the face before their person's gone. Not necessarily even, yes, you should, I think, to spend more time with people, but to appreciate the time that you're spending with those people as very, very precious, and is, which is what it really is. This is it, you know? There's not much time left with these people. Even if you all have a bunch of years left, the actual time with these relationships is in its waning years. So it's another zoom out. It's a different form of zoom out. And the stat, I think, that hit a chord with people when I included it in an article I wrote, one particular who was sort of arguing me about it, and I think... Yeah, I think he was struggling with the with the math. I mean, it doesn't mean that the quality time is over. But what was the stat by the time your kids went to college? I think it was eighty percent, or was it even higher than that? I think it's even higher. I mean, if you just yeah. think about if for eighteen years you're spending most days with them, yeah, okay, and then just say you're lucky and your parents live till they're really old, so you have another forty years after you leave. So 20 years with the parents and then 40 years after. So it's double the years you've got left with your parents alive. But going from 365 days a year, just say you're one of these people that sees their parents a lot. Like you see them 30 days a year. That's a lot. Okay. So that's someone that sees their parents almost once a week, 36 days a year, which is one tenth of 365. So what that means is that if you were spending 365 days with your parents, essentially, you're close to that for the first 20 years, and then the next 40, you're spending a tenth of that time, it's equivalent to only four more actual years. So four, 40 years divided by, you know, you're seeing them one tenth of the days now. Now you actually have four years left. So you've done 18 with them and you've got four left. So you're actually in the very last, you know, in this case, 20%, like you said, But I think that a lot of people don't see their parents 30 days a year. I think some of them who don't live in the same city see their parents five or 10 days a year. So now we're talking about you really have about 120th left. You've got about a year left. A full like, you know, one of those years you did, junior year of high school, all the time you saw your parents that year, you have that cumulative amount of time left to spread out over the next 40 years. If you're lucky, if your parents live a long life and so do you. So it's this very unpleasant topic. And it's not unpleasant, but it's unpleasant because reality is unpleasant. And it's if we think reality is more pleasant than it is, then we make bad decisions that we deeply regret later once it's too late, once we suddenly have the punch in the face. And now we look back and say, wow, I just, all those years just went by. I barely saw them, didn't connect, didn't get into any deep conversations with them. And now it's gone. And oh, I would just, you know, you hear people say things like, I would pay, I would, I would do anything. I would give everything I've got for one more day with my mom or my dad. I mean, this is really hard to hear. And yet, those of us who still have these people, and again, it's not just parents, it's spouses, it's the kids that, your kids that live with you if you have kids, because that's the same situation on the other side. We can't absorb that fact that you would do anything for one day. Once, when the people are still there, you just take them for granted. We just think of them as they're there forever. I'm here forever. They're here forever. We're I'll see them forever. It's just, we're not programmed to see the truth. And so the unpleasant post is important to absorb, uh, whether it's a post or your own way of thinking about this. Because, and it's a downer, but good, because the the good feelings you have is a delusion. So you don't want want it. Those are not your friends, those good feelings of, of that they're here forever. You want to feel kind of upset about the situation. 
you want to feel kind of sad and kind of stressed and kind of urgent to spend time with them. That is not, it doesn't feel as good, but you will be, you know, it's way better than the regret you'd feel later. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. And so you obviously you had to do a lot of thinking about this as you wrote it, because it happens to me a lot of my writing it forces me to think about something like, did it compel you to make any major changes in your own life? Well, you know, I, I would I would love to say I, I made a ton of changes. <laughs> Called your parents. And no, I'm still a human who, you know, I can say all this and then 10 minutes passes and I the delusion kicks in again, because this delusion is really hard to rid ourselves of. We are programmed to believe all these things that helped us survive in 50,000 BC. We're not programmed to believe things that are real if they didn't help us then. So we are really fighting against our programming to try to absorb this. So I, I will say that, you know, little things like my family does a few trips a year. It'll be, you know, a little weekend with this crew and then another weekend with this other crew and then it will do a big thing together. And I've become kind of like very adamant about not ever missing those ever. So, you know, I, I don't think of those as, hey, I can't make it this year, guys. I'll, I'll uh, you know, sorry, I'm just too busy. I'll, I don't ever say that. I always, it's, it's always comes first. It doesn't matter what's happening. So that's one thing I've done, but I still live in New York. My parents live in Boston. My sisters live in Boulder, Colorado. So we're all over the place. Now, I, one of the things that I, I have done well is most of my good friends live in New York, or at least like half of them. So I will say that I'm in the best place on the planet to maximize the time with the friends that matter most to me. So I think I'm doing an okay job. I'd give myself a B minus. And I'll, you know, a B minus is, is still better than what, you know, what I think probably me before and maybe a lot of other people are getting currently, which is more like a C minus or a D. And so, yeah, I, I, I could do better. But What's a fair self-assessment? I, I think one thing that's similar for me sort of when I write my Friday 4 newsletter that the process of writing is a lot of thinking it. It doesn't mean you do it perfectly or whatever, but it, it sort of clarifies your thoughts and philosophy around it. And look, none of us are, are perfect, nor are we preaching perfection. Uh, I wanted to touch on the question about travel. I know you've done a lot of international travel, written about it. What is it about international travel that sort of widens person's perspective and 
have you come up with your some of your best ideas when you're out and in a different environment or context? Yeah, I, I think um, to harp on the same thing here, I think <laughs> the valuable thing is when you're somewhere else, other than all the other just fun benefits of traveling, um, it's a good way to get more in touch with reality in a couple ways. We have a couple program delusions that it can help us get out of. One is that we just are seeing our own life and our own world from the inside all the time. That's it. We're just in the middle of it. When you travel, even though it shouldn't actually matter because it just uh, you're physically somewhere different, but somehow the more uh, from a foreign environment you're in, you know, so it's not necessarily far away. If I go to Sydney and I'm hanging out with a bunch of expat Americans in a house, like that doesn't do the trick. It's much more about culturally foreign, culturally far away uh, from where you are. The more you do that, the more you see your own world from the outside, from another vantage point than you'd normally do. And that does a lot to help you kind of assess your own priorities and like, okay, now I can see this whole world. What actually do I want to be doing in that world? And, and, and how, and, and what am I, you know, what am I so anxious about in that world? Does that make sense? Does the anxiety actually map onto reality? And so it, that's one delusion you know you're supposed to just be stuck in, in your life but we can travel now we can move to different cultures for a little bit of time and that's not you're not supposed to be able to do either so that helps us kind of crack through this this natural delusion of ours and then the second kind is we really do have the tendency to kind of feel like either you know other cultures that are really different i think we both underestimate and overestimate how much how, how close they are to us what i mean by that is like on one hand i think we think of them as we kind of forget that other people do what they do because they have a totally different set of life experiences and right. values. And if you were in their, you know, behind their eyes, living their life, you would also be doing those things. So it helps you have more compassion. And it's not just foreign people, you know, in other countries, it's just people that are different than you. It helps you not judge. It's really unwise to like judge harshly the behavior and actions of other people who are doing those things because they had different life programming than you that it's made them uh, that way and made them feel this way and you feel the way you are in the way you do and what you're doing because of a totally different set of inputs so like you had different inputs like why are you judging the outputs of someone that had totally different inputs than you so we, we forget that people are different in that way we also sometimes think they're more different than they are and that when we are judging other people whether it's kind of a your political out group the political people in your own country who you hate or it's the other countries or whatever. And you just, um, you, you dehumanize them, you demonize them in a way because you just feel like they're almost not even people. They're so different than you could never even. And then when you actually spend time, I think it, it, it's a good reminder that, you know, everyone is a person and that, that right there gives you a fuck ton in common with each other because just being a person, uh, we're all dealing with a lot of the same weird psychological things. We're dealing with a lot of the same physical things. Just people in some ways are really similar to each other, we, even though we all are, you know, have different lenses on the world. So I think it's just good to remind yourself that everyone is a 3D human, just like you. And that you know, sometimes you overrate cultures. Oh, this culture is so wise and perfect. No, they're shitty in a lot of ways and they're good in a lot of ways, just like yeah. your culture. And everyone, just like every person and every culture, they're all 0.5. There's no ones and zeros. And so I think it's a good reminder of that. It just builds compassion, I think, on both sides, both of those epiphanies can build compassion for others. And then that first thing can help you zoom out on your own life. So th that's, to me, there's a lot of really, those are some serious benefits to 
getting out of your home world. I totally agree. All right, last question and it's multiple choice. You can choose personal or professional and it can be single or recurring. But what, what is a mistake you've made and, and what, what have you learned the most from it? Yeah, man. Well, there's a lot to choose from here. I, um, I would say I'm in the middle of a current mistake that I'm aware of that I've learned from while being in the middle of it. The big overarching mistake that the other ones all are nested under is underestimating the challenge that each of us has. I don't care who you are. They're all different. But each of us has a beast of a challenge against ourselves, trying to get control and you know, take the reins of our own lives from within. I'm pretty sure, and I, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I'm pretty sure that for most of us, the biggest challenge we have is from within. And when I came out of college, I had absolutely no idea about that. I, I thought, sure, I'm a procrastinator. Sure, I can be kind of a perfectionist. Sure, I can self-defeat sometimes, but like, you know, that's just me being silly. The real challenge is out in the world. How am I going to like make my way in this big, complex, competitive world? That's the, you know, and I need so much luck and I need to, you know, do all this, you know, stuff, you know, and, and it was just wrong. The actual out external world for people who really have, have won the internal battle, I think it's a breeze. I think the external world, yeah. if you've won the internal battle, it means you're A, shooting for the right things because you're wise internally and you're, and you actually can do the things that you want to do. You can make progress in the way you want to make in the ways you want to make. And that is, um, then the world is quite easy for those people. I think well, even you know, whether, whether, whether it's, uh, that you, you, you actually become less ambitious once you know yourself well, and you just want to, you know, live a balanced, healthy life. And then the world is easy for that person because they, they can do that. Or even if someone really wants to do, you know, super ambitious things out in the world after they've gotten to know themselves, they still want that. I think that the world is actually not that hard if someone is just doing all the right things that we all know, you know, we all know what to do somewhere deep down in, in most cases, um, even if that thing is learning about what to do, but we don't do it. We, we defeat ourselves. So some people defeat themselves by overeating. Some people defeat themselves with drug addictions or alcohol. Some people defeat themselves with procrastination. They sabotage relationships. They don't exercise. There's so many ways we do it. And I just think that um, that's the big mistake that I made right out of college. I totally underestimated the big beast that I was battling, the big dragon. And I, was, yeah. I thought I was battling this little dragon. Um, and I would say I'm still working on that. Now, I'm, um, at least I think I know where to work now. Like At least I'm aware of where the problem is. I don't, I don't underestimate it anymore. But I'm still working on it. Still battling the internal battle every day. So I think that uh, that's something that everyone should think about probably. Yeah, that battle, that battle rages on for most of us. So Tim, how, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, um, well, I, I mostly uh, do my stuff when it does come out on uh, waitbutwhy.com. And, um, and people should subscribe to the email list because that's where we're, that's the easiest way to just Right. Since I'm very irregular with posting, that's the easiest way to get something new. When I have something new, it'll actually just uh, come to you. So very apropos that you got to sign up and wait for it. That's right. I wonder why. Correct. So, <laughs> that's <laughs> correct. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, Tim, thanks for sharing your story with us. Uh, you're an amazing example of what we can achieve when we focus on why we do the things we do and what we want to do. And I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Great. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Tim, Wait But Why, his TED Talk, and particularly the post on Lifespan on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and the content. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts today, just scroll down to the bottom of the episode page to leave your review. If you're listening in your browser on a different app, you can find easy links to review on other services such as Google Play and Stitcher by following the subscribe page link under the podcast link at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.